Chapter 10, Part 1 of the History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 10, Part 1. The fourth century, which gave to the Church power and dignity, brought also a great accession of literary activity. In the Greek church especially, the exposition of scripture was steadily prosecuted and Christian eloquence largely developed. General culture still remained classical. If some of the Christian writers had their genius nursed in the solitude of the desert, many shared in the highest education of their time. The school of Athens still flourished. There were to be found philosophers who were ready to initiate disciples into the mysteries of Neoplatonism, sophists who taught the dialectic art, grammarians who expounded the great writers who were the glory of ancient Greece. There some of those who were afterward to adorn Greek theology studied under the guidance of the most illustrious teachers of paganism. But the general feeling towards the great pagans was in this age very different from that which had animated Clement of Alexandria and the early apologists. These sought in the ancient documents of heathendom for traces of the working of the ever-present word. The Christian writers of the second period, while many of them were fully conscious of the intellectual greatness and the perfect form of the Greek and Latin models, were yet torn with scruples if they gave to them an eager and admiring study. Jerome was filled with horror and remorse for the ardent study and admiration which he had given to Cicero. Augustine deplored the wine of error which was given to the young Christian to drink in the choice words of the ancient writers. Such men were conscious that a spirit which was not that of Christ underlay the beauty of the old world. But in spite of this feeling, we are conscious that Christian literature shines with the evening glow of classical culture up to about the middle of the fifth century. The Council of Chalcedon seems to mark an epoch. The long dogmatic controversies, though they caused much writing, were not favorable to the quiet cultivation from which the best literature proceeds. As is natural, there is found a correspondence between the general culture of any period and its theology, for theology rises from the application of the intellect to revealed truth. Christian truth came into contact with philosophy both as a friend and as an enemy. In both characters it received an influence. And when Greek philosophy came to an end, all the vigor and originality of Christian theology came to an end with it. Men like Anastasius and Basil were found no more after the middle of the 5th century. And the barbarian invaders of the empire destroyed much of the old social life. In the end, they produced the great literature of modern Europe, but at first the Teutons were destructive rather than a creative force. Whatever the cause, about the middle of the fifth century, a great change came over Christian literature. The vigorous intellectual life of an earlier period was lost in dullness or tawdriness. We see no longer the spirit of inquiry and philosophy. Literature contents itself with bringing together and epitomizing old matter with a view rather to edification than to the extension of knowledge. So utterly did even a Roman of high rank come to despise the graces of style, that Gregory the Great exults, in the manner of a modern Puritan, that he had no need to trouble himself with the rules of Donatus. 
and he is very indignant with Desiderius of Vienne for having ventured to lecture on some of the classical writers. The story told by John of Salisbury, that he burned the ancient treasures of the Palatine Library, is perhaps not worthy of belief. It was a highly significant sign that original literature and frank discussion had ceased when Pope Hormistus, if that was he, put forth a list of books which the faithful were not permitted to read. Most of these are, however, really heretical, or falsely attributed to the persons whose name they bear. We find everywhere the two great principles of human nature in perpetual conflict. On the one hand, respect for authority, dread of change, desire to maintain the state of things in which man finds himself. On the other, more reliance on the powers which God has given to man, more hopefulness, more readiness to leave the things which are behind and to press forward to those which are before. To speak generally, we may say that the Latin church took the conservative side, the Greek that of free discussion and inquiry. But this description is by no means complete and exhaustive. The churches were separated by no impassable barrier, much respect for authority was found in the East, and some free inquiry in the West. The great representative in the East of the freer tone in matters of dogma and exegesis was the school of Antioch. It owes its origin, no doubt, to the impulse given by origin to theology, but it ran an independent course. Instead of the originistic allegorizing of the Bible, in the school of Antioch the leading men insisted on the necessity of grammatical and historical exposition. Not that they rejected type and allegory, but that they insisted that all edifying exegesis must be founded on an accurate understanding of the words of Scripture in their literal and historical sense, which the allegorists, pure and simple altogether, disregarded. The authority of Christ himself and of his apostles encourages us to search for a deep and spiritual meaning under the ordinary words of Scripture, which, however, cannot be gained by any arbitrary allegorizing, but only by following out patiently the course of God's dealings with man. This was the principle of the Antiochenes. They looked to reason rather than to authority to explain and develop dogma, taking their stand on scripture. They were anxious that the human element in the Lord himself, in his word, and in his church, should receive the consideration which it sometimes seemed in danger of losing. In this effort it is not to be denied that some of them took too little account of the divine element, and failed to grasp the full significance of the work of Christ as incarnate Saviour and Redeemer. The influence of this school was great in the East during the 4th and 5th centuries, and when it grew weak in its early home, the Antiochian Cassian planted an offshoot in Gaul. A very noteworthy figure in the school of Antioch is Eusebius, Bishop of Emesa, of whom Jerome wrote that his elegant and forcible style caused him to be much studied by those who wished to distinguish themselves in popular oratory. In the fragments which remain of his numerous works, Eusebius appears as a representative of those who thought that much of the theological dissension of his time arose from the morbid desire to know more than Scripture had revealed. Confess, he says, that which is written of the Father and the Son and do not require that which is not written. If a dogma is not in Scripture, let it not be taught. If it is in Scripture, let it not be extinguished. His desire to avoid adding to Scripture propositions of man's device seems to have perplexed his contemporaries, 
for while Jerome describes him as a ringleader of the Arians, Socrates and Sozomen agree in saying that he was suspected of holding Sabellian opinions. Cyril, bishop of Jerusalem, lived through the greater part of the eventful fourth century. Once suspected of heretical opinions, he was persecuted by the Arian emperor Valens for his adherence to orthodoxy, and was among those who sat at the Council of Constantinople in 381. The catechetical lectures which he delivered while still a presbyter in Jerusalem, the first part of the series to those who were preparing for baptism, the latter part to the newly baptized, were a most valuable record both of the instruction which it was thought necessary to give to those who came to be baptized, and of the state of the liturgy of Jerusalem at the time when they were delivered. But the most flourishing period of the Antiochian school begins with Eusebius's pupil Diodorus, who in the year 378 was consecrated by Meletius to the see of Tarsus. He wrote commentaries on many of the books of the Old Testament, giving his principal attention to the actual words of Scripture and disregarding allegory in his desire to reach the true historical sense of the text. He seems, however, to have fully recognized the divine element in the typical events of the sacred history. He was an energetic defender of the Orthodox faith against the Arians and taught John Chrysostom his principles of Scripture interpretation. John, sometimes called from his see John of Constantinople, and afterwards from his splendid eloquence, John of the Golden Mouth, Chrysostomos, was born about the year 347 at Antioch, of distinguished family both on his father's and his mother's side. His father died while the son was yet a child, and the young widow, Anthusa, devoting herself to the education of her son, implanted in his infant mind the seeds of that earnest piety which he never lost. His early training under the pagan rhetorician, Libanius, who regretted that the Christians had stolen his most promising pupil, in no way injured his faith in Christ. After he had for a short time practiced as an advocate with so much success that the highest offices seemed open to him, he withdrew from the turmoil of a worldly life and devoted himself to reading and meditating on Holy Scripture. Meletius, Bishop of Antioch, seeing how highly gifted he was, instructed him in the great Christian verities, baptized him, and ordained him to the office of reader. When in the trebulous year 370 Meletius and several of the neighboring bishops were deposed, it was hoped that John would be induced to fill one of the vacant sees. He, however, avoided the unquiet dignity which he induced his friend Basil to accept. A few years later, his mother being probably dead, he joined a community of monks in the neighborhood of Antioch, where he thought he had found a harbor of refuge from the rough waves of this troublesome world. Here, in company with men like-minded, such as Theodore, afterwards of Mopsuestia, he devoted himself to the ascetic life and the study of the Bible under the guidance of the learned Diodorus, afterwards Bishop of Tarsus, and Carterius, until about the year 380. To this period belong his earliest writings. His health, having broken under the severity of his ascetic practices, he returned to Antioch, where Meletius, now restored to his see, ordained him deacon, and his successor Flavian promoted him to the priesthood, giving him special permission to preach in the cathedral church. His reputation rose to the highest pitch 
when in the following year he preached a course of sermons to encourage the people of Antioch when they were dreading the emperor's vengeance for a tumult in which his statues had been overthrown. For several years he continued to use his great influence in Antioch against sects and heresies and against the pagan frivolity and luxury which were corrupting the Christian church. In the year 397 this career came to an end. The emperor Arcadius chose him, very much against his own wish, to be patriarch of Constantinople in succession to Nectarius, and he received consecration as bishop from Theophilus of Alexandria, who was afterwards to overthrow him. As in his high position he spared neither heresy nor corruption in high places, and endeavored strenuously to introduce a higher standard of life and work among the bishops and clergy, there were soon many powerful persons who desired the removal of this new John Baptist. These made common cause with the empress Eudoxia, who had herself been greatly offended by the freedom of John's preaching against licentiousness of life. Theophilus of Alexandria, who had himself been summoned to Constantinople to answer before the patriarch and the council of his diocese to grave charges, was ready enough to prefer countercharges against John. A synod summoned at the Oak, a suburb of Chalcedon, at which Theophilus, supported by the Empress, himself presided, deposed the good patriarch in his absence, for he steadily refused to acknowledge its authority. The Emperor Arcadius, requested by the synod and influenced by his wife at all costs to remove him from his see, caused him in the dusk of a September evening to be conducted to the coast of Bithynia. Thereupon there arose in the city, where the people generally had been deeply impressed by the holiness and beneficence of their bishop, so fierce a tumult that the terrified emperor ordered his recall. With the most enthusiastic expressions of joy he was escorted back to the church from which he had been expelled. The hostility of the empress, however, knew no remission, and the good bishop who reproved her was again banished, first to Nicasa, then to Caucasus in the bleak district of the Taurus range. Even from this remote spot his influence was felt, and the emperor ordered his removal to Pityus on the eastern shore of the Black Sea. He died, however, under brutal treatment on his journey thither. In this great teacher we see the most eager zeal for perfect simplicity and even rigor of life united with the most tender love for the souls of men. With all his championship of orthodoxy in belief, with all his devotion to monastic austerity, he still preached Christian love and beneficence as the most excellent gifts, and his practice corresponded to his preaching. But his great legacy to the church is found in the sermons and homilies in which he expounded a large part both of the Old and New Testament. In this exegetic work, uniting as he does simple and natural explanation of the text with earnest and eloquent application of it to the circumstances of his hearers, he is the flower of the great school of Antioch. Few nobler names are found in the church's role of saints than that of John Chrysostom. Perhaps the most remarkable product of the Antiochian school of scriptural interpretation was Theodore, a presbyter of Antioch who became bishop of Mopsuestia in Cilicia. He was a steady opponent of the allegorical method of interpreting scripture, and perhaps carried the historical and critical spirit to excess. 
He anticipated, in fact, several of the conclusions which have become more familiar to us in the present century. But throughout the history of the Israelites, he sees God's preparation of his people for better things to come, he finds types of the Savior, and he always acknowledges the reality of prophecy. Few men were in higher repute for earnest work and sanctity of life. Everywhere he was regarded as the herald of the truth and the teacher of the church. Even distant churches received instruction from him. We believe as Theodore believed, long live the faith of Theodore, was a cry often heard in the churches of the East. Yet one hundred and twenty-five years after his death, the fifth general council, under the influence of Justinian, condemned his works. It was perhaps the stir which followed this condemnation, which caused some of his works to be translated into Latin and circulated in the West, where they had hitherto been almost unknown. To the Antiochian school belongs also Theodoret, born in Antioch, from his cradle devoted to a life of religion, and visited frequently by pious monks, it is not wonderful that when he became a man he entered a monastery, from which he reluctantly withdrew on being chosen bishop of Cyrus or Cyrus in the Euphratensis, a widespread diocese containing many churches, and abounding in heresies of various kinds which the good bishop endeavored to combat. In his interpretation of scripture, he is a disciple of Theodore, but without the occasional extravagance of his master. For appreciation, terseness of expression, and good sense, his commentaries on St. Paul are perhaps unsurpassed, but they have little claim to originality, and he who has read Chrysostom and Theodore of Mopsuestia will find scarcely anything in Theodoret which he has not seen before. He professes nothing more than to gather his stores from the Blessed Fathers. In controversy and in history, he is as remarkable as in exegesis. He presents himself to us in his works and in the accounts of his contemporaries as a great and holy bishop, an accomplished man of letters, an acute and accurate scientific theologian, a sound and skillful controversialist, a church historian learned and generally impartial, an eloquent and persuasive preacher, almost rivaling in his celebrity and his power over his hearers, his great fellow-townsman John Chrysostom. He has a place of his own in the literature of the first centuries, and a place in which he has no rival. We feel towards him as we can hardly feel towards any of his contemporaries in East or West. While in Western Syria the Greek language and Greek culture prevailed, in Eastern Syria the native tongue was the language of theology, which there took oriental forms of thought and style. Here arose a divinity decked with florid poetical imagery, exhorting men to a holy and ascetic life, and often tinged with mysticism. It resembled the West Syrian school in favoring an exegesis which took account of the exact and literal sense of the words of Scripture, though in dogmatic prepossessions it came nearer to the later Alexandrian school. The principal seats of this school were Nisibius and Edessa. James, Bishop of Nisbis, though a Syrian and living on the confines of the empire, took an eager interest in the dogmatic controversies of his time, defending the orthodox cause in many writings. His works have perished, but his influence lived in his pupil Ephraim, also a Syrian. This distinguished prophet of the Syrians was born probably at Nisbis, but when Nisbis fell into the hands of the Persians, removed to Edessa, near which city he lived an ascetic life, 
and was greatly venerated by his countrymen. It was mainly Ephraim's influence which gave to the theological literature of the Syrians its peculiar form, in which the dogma of the church is presented rather in the figurative style which is dear to the East than in the dialectics of the West. It is true especially of his homilies and treatises, which were written in a poetical form attractive to those whom he addressed. This gives his compositions a certain elevation of style, and occasionally rises them to the rank of true lyric poetry. He also commented on the Old Testament and on the Diatessaron of Tatian. All his works seem to have been written in Syriac, though they were soon translated into Greek. Beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire, in the kingdom of Persia, seems to have existed in the fourth century a Christianity almost untouched by the dogmatic storms which agitated the Greek church, of which the most remarkable representative is the Persian sage Aphrahat, Aphrates, who was bishop of mar near Mosul. His homilies or tracts show that he was influenced by the Jewish methods of exposition, though he blames the Jews for their legalism, their national exclusiveness, and their refusal to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. He appears to have made use of Tatian's Diatessaron, and to have been, to some extent, influenced by his views. In his confession of faith he seems to have derived nothing from the current formularies of his time, but to have drawn his views of our Lord's divinity direct from Scripture itself. A conspicuous leader of the West Syrian party was Ibis, Bishop of Edessa, where he had previously taught theology and where he had great influence. He was an ardent admirer of Theodore of Mopsuestia, whose works he translated into Syriac and constantly recommended. As was natural, he did not escape the suspicion of heresy which fell upon Theodore, and his posthumous fame is in fact due quite as much to the controversy which arose about him as to his own merits, for there is nothing to indicate that he was a man of original genius. Procopius of Gaza heads a long series of those useful commentators who are simply compilers, putting together the thoughts of those who have gone before them without venturing on originality. He wrote in a neat and concise style commentaries on most of the books of the Old Testament. End of section 10, part 1